All right, everybody. My name is Jordan. Thanks for being here. Um, specifically, if you're new to Salt City or if you don't believe what we believe, uh, we're really glad you're here. You're welcome here. Thanks for being a part of this. Um, so, you know, in a movie, when it's getting close to kind of the, the climax of the movie and maybe there's a lot of quick shots or there's a montage of all these things that are kind of being put together and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, everything really slows down. Right? Or like in a war movie, there's, maybe there's bullets flying, things are going crazy, and then all of a sudden it, it goes down into slow-mo, and maybe it's got like that heartbeat thing going on, like, doo -doo, doo -doo, and it just like, and you're like, you're leaning in, right? Okay, what's happening in that moment in the movie is they're signaling to you that one of the most significant parts of the movie is about to happen, and it's causing you to lean in. So here's what Matthew has been doing throughout this book is he slowed down a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount because it was Jesus' expression of what the kingdom of God is like, but then he's been flying through the life of Jesus, just quick touch points on the main points of his life. But now we get to the section that we're in in Matthew, uh, starting in chapter 21, and all of a sudden everything slows down. And what we're going to get for the rest of Matthew is a look at the last days of Jesus' life on earth. We're entering... Holy Week. And instead of years of his life, Matthew is now focusing on specific words that Jesus says. And in this text, what we have is a look at the last words at the most important man who's ever lived. And that's where we're, we find ourselves in Matthew. Now, I'm going to get into that in a second. We're going to start with the triumphal entry, which uh, I think Palm Sunday, the, the beginning of Holy Week and all these events that are leading to ultimately the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we're going to cover a ton of content, okay? So we're in chapters 21 through 23. There's like 108 parables in those chapters. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it feels like that when you're studying it. Um, so there's parables. There's really important content. So I'm not obviously going to be able to cover that. We're going to focus in on a couple pieces of it, but I want to just show my work real quickly and kind of give you an overview of what these chapters are about. So in 21, it starts with the triumphal entry. It's the declaration of Jesus as the king. But then as he comes into Jerusalem, the, the humble king, there's also these stories about his authority. He, clean, he cleanses the temple, he heals people, he withers a fig tree on the spot. So he's demonstrating that he is God himself in revealing his authority. So that's going on in chapter 21. And then after that, there's a bunch of these parables about essentially the same basic idea, which is who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 22, the Pharisees come and they decide to, to throw down with Jesus. They want to test him, which is a bad idea. And Jesus just dominates them intellectually. And, and uh, it, it's this incredible display where, where the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus, but Jesus is using that moment to, to explain what the kingdom of God is like and to talk about what people are like who are in the kingdom. And then chapter 23, Jesus is calling down woes on the Pharisees. He's being very blunt and straightforward about how they've gone wrong, and he's pushing back against their religious hypocrisy, okay? So when you dig into this, there's actually this pretty consistent flow within the text of what is going on. And, and so here's what we're talking about today. We're talking about what type of king Jesus is and who's in and who's out 
of his kingdom. All right, so let's start with the inauguration of the king. Matthew 21, 5 through 10. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, uh, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the, on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? So I want you to take a minute and put yourself in this story. So imagine that, that you're there. Feel like the dust underneath your feet, the the warm air on your neck. Imagine that you have a house in Jerusalem and you've had a busy couple days. And so you, you've missed a little bit of the memo of what's going on around Jerusalem. And so you're just in your home cooking and then you hear something off in the distance and you can't quite distinguish what it is. Maybe you made it up, but then a couple minutes goes by and, and it gets a little bit louder and you realize that it's the roar of crowds. And so you get your family together and, and you walk out of your home, and people are sprinting past your house, yelling, Hosanna, the king has come, and, and they're running all over the place, and there's this crowd that's completely uh, consuming Jerusalem, and, and, and the crowd is, is running so much that dust is starting to fill the air, and there's this dust cloud that's lifting up over the city, and you look at the tree that's immediately outside of your house, and there's no limbs or branches on that tree until about 10 feet up because people have cut down every branch, and they're just running around with branches yelling, Hosanna. And so, so you're wondering what all the commotion is about, and so you just start following the crowd. And as you get closer, the crowd gets more and more concentrated. And, and you know when you're in the back of the crowd, you can't see anything that's happening. You just see the back of heads, but you can tell from the roar where kind of things are going down. And, and you can hear it off to your left, and it's coming towards you. And so you start pushing through the crowd until you finally get close to the front to just get an eye on what's going on. And then around the corner comes Jesus of Nazareth. Not a king riding a horse, not a mob of people who will take over Rome, but Jesus on a donkey. Riding a donkey for a king was weird back then too, just like it is to us, okay? Just, just to be clear, that wasn't like a normal cultural practice. Kings rode horses, servants rode donkeys, and so there's this, this combination of this epic moment that seems like the declaration of a king, but this just utter and kind of socially awkward, weird humility. So here's what's happening. This is, this is an inauguration of Jesus. What happens in an inauguration? We're about to have one. It's where this, this political ruler is, is publicly declared to have this new position. And, and, and picture a typical inauguration. This one will look a little bit different, but picture a typical inauguration where you've got crowds, hundreds and thousands of people all coming to the same place for one ruler. And it's this public display of, of power. And it marks this, this political transition, the ushering in of a new era, and it's typically filled with hope, like things will be different this time, okay? So, so this is Jesus's inauguration as king in Jerusalem. 
But instead of riding in in a stretch limo with secret service around him and bulletproof glass, Jesus is rolling in driving a Geo Metro. Okay, like it is just a deeply odd scene. And then he gets out of the car and there's no secret service around him. There's no glass around him. There's no protection whatsoever. And here's what Jesus knows in this moment is there actually is a conspiracy attempt that's happening, people planning to take his life. And Jesus is well aware of that. And instead of hiding from that, he's walking directly towards it unbelievable humility. But also what we see in this kind of display of a king is incredible authority. It's this this combination of the two which seems like a contrast. Because typically when we think about character traits, we at least think about human beings where we're typically like Things are on a spectrum, right? So you've got humility on one side of a spectrum. We were talking about this in my connection group this week. You've got humility on one side of the spectrum, and you've got authority on the other side of the spectrum, and the more authority you gain, the less humility you have. Or maybe you could put like wrath and anger on one side and kindness on the other side, and if you move one direction, you, you, you lose a little bit of the other, but not with Jesus, because Jesus can be fully both, <laughs> And so in this moment, he is entirely humble and incredibly authoritative. He's the one that rides a donkey, and he's also the author of life. And so the the people in the crowd ask the right question. Who is this? Who is this? Who does something like this? And that for you is the most important question of your life. Who do you say that this is? And let me actually clarify that that question. So the crowds started to answer that question appropriately. They said, this is a prophet. This is the king. But a few days later, they completely abandoned him and didn't care about him. And so their words didn't reveal what they really believed about him. So your actions are the best indicator about what you believe, not your words. And so not only who do you say Jesus is, but what does your life say about him? That's the question. And what you say about that will be the thing that determines whether you are in his kingdom of eternal everlasting joy or whether you're separated from that joy for eternity. And so let's talk about that. Who's in on the kingdom and who's out? So I'll actually start with who's out of the kingdom because that's where Jesus starts. So after he comes into the city and he demonstrates some of his power, he tells these parables. And one of the parables he tells is the story of a master who owns a vineyard. And that master leaves and rents out that vineyard to some tenants. And then when it's time to collect the grapes, the master sends one of his servants to the vineyard to collect the fruit. But the tenants try to seize this opportunity not to depend on the master, but to become the master. And they try to throw a revolt and take over the vineyard. 
And so instead of handing over the fruits of the vineyard, they beat up and kill the servants. And so the master sends another round of servants, and the same thing happens. And then the master finally decides, I'll finally send my son. They will respect my son. But then the tenants do the exact same thing. And they kill the son, and they try to take over the vineyard. Now, this is an illustration from Jesus about the people of Israel. And it's a prediction of his own death, that the people of Israel are about to throw out the Son of God. And and here's what went wrong with the people of Israel, specifically the rulers of Israel, is that they did not want to depend on God, they wanted to be God. And so they threw a revolt against God, and instead of depending on him for everything they needed in life, specifically forgiveness and grace, they tried to produce their own righteousness, their own justification without him. And the scary thing about this is that is not the exception of human nature, it's the rule. So the tendency can be to look at a story like that and be like, man, how terrible are those servants? How terrible was Israel? How bad were the Pharisees? But the reality is this is the, the natural inclination of your heart and of mine. It's your desire. It's natural for you to try to do the same thing. And when you reject the king, you will be rejected from his kingdom. Matthew 21, 43, this is how that parable ends. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So a little bit later, Jesus clarifies how these people were rebelling against his authority. And it wasn't just blatant sin in the sense that we typically think about it, but it was with fake religiosity. They rejected Jesus with their attempts at goodness. So skip over to chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Such a great analogy. Um, Here's what the Pharisees were doing, is they were trying to come up with justifications for their rebellion against God, their immoral behavior. And so they they were using little things like counting out all of their spices and, and giving that to the temple to try and distract people from the fact that they weren't living out the heart of God for justice and mercy and love. Have you ever heard people give really weird rationalizations for stuff, especially purchases? Uh, like, like where they make something that you know, like that was just a bad idea. They know it was a bad idea, but they kind of talk themselves into it. Like, like somebody, imagine somebody's trying to save money, right? They go out and buy themselves like a $30,000 vehicle and then you ask them about it, and they're like, well, it gets great gas mileage. Like, like the five bucks that you're saving on gas is not making up for what you just dropped on that vehicle, right? It doesn't make any sense, but we're looking for justification from the smaller matters to try and justify the greater matters. The Pharisees were donating portions of their spices to justify the fact that they had missed the heart of God. Mercy, faithfulness, love, that's hypocrisy. 
I wonder what Jesus would say to us. So he walks in the back of the room, comes up on Salt City, on the stage, and looks out at Salt City, and he wants to have this moment of honesty with us. What's he going to say? I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't speak for him, but we could come up with some thoughts where we're similar to the Pharisees, right? Like, woe to you who have so thoroughly sanitized your life and your family from sin that there's no room left for friendship with sinners. Woe to you who call out the greed of the rich without doing anything yourself for the poor. Woe to you who condemn the sexual practices of non-Christians while indulging in a secret pornography addiction. Woe to you who confuse political outrage with Christianity and you use that to arrogantly condemn people who disagree with you, forgetting that you're to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Woe to you who don't care about racial justice and what our brothers and sisters are saying about their experience in America because of your carefully crafted political and social arguments. Woe to you who cry out about racial justice while in your rage forget entirely about mercy and forgiveness and love towards people you're yelling at. Woe to you who ask God for forgiveness while holding on to bitterness against people in your life yourself. I think those land with us. They land with me. And if they didn't land with you, then it, it's probably more likely to be true. The Pharisees were the last people to, to realize they were Pharisees. If you don't think you are a Pharisee, that's probably great evidence that you are one. And that this using of the lesser righteousness to try to cover up the greater wickedness is a very human thing to do. And we've got to come to grips with the fact that it's nothing short of rejecting the king. Because Jesus is the only one who justifies. He's the only one who can heal us. He's the only one who's good. And when we try to take care of that in his place, we're pushing back against his authority. We're, we're like the tenants in the parables who are forgetting our place and instead of depending on the king, we're trying to become the king. Why? Because it's embarrassing to be dependent on someone to do something for you that you should be able to do for yourself. We don't want to be that person. We want to be independent. We want to be able to heal ourselves. We want to be good in and of ourselves. So the other day, I walked in on my son, Graham, trying to change his own diaper. He, and I just stood there and watched it for a while. He didn't know I was there. And uh, he had all of his clothes on. He was dirty, needed a diaper change. And he had a diaper in his hand that he had grabbed, which, you know, that was pretty good. Um, and he was like trying to put it on over his clothes. And he had it like around his knee and was trying to like buckle it around his knee. And he was like, okay, this isn't working. So then he took it, like looked at it, flipped it over, right? Tried to shove it down the back of his pants for a while. Just watched the whole thing. It was amazing. Uh, now here's the deal. I could have watched him do that for five hours and he never would have succeeded. Because he doesn't have the ability to clean himself up. It doesn't matter how hard he tries. You do not have the ability to clean yourself up. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You need help. 
and you trying to clean up your sin with your own righteousness is as ridiculous as my son trying to change his own diaper. It's just not as cute. The woes to the Pharisees land with us. But listen, how do you stop being a hypocrite? You admit that you are one. What's a hypocrite? Someone who tries to pretend to be something that you're not. And so the minute you just acknowledge that you are that thing that you're trying to justify yourself in your own goodness is the minute that you stop becoming a hypocrite. You, you challenge a king, you get the sword. You humble yourself before a king, you get mercy. Listen, do, do you know how King Jesus responds to our rebellion, to our sin, even to our hypocrisy? As he hops on a donkey, he touches lepers, he washes feet, he intentionally becomes killable for you. Why? Tim Keller put it like this. Sin is servants putting themselves in the place of a king. That's your temptation. Salvation is the king putting himself in the place of a servant. Jesus the king rides on a donkey like a servant because he's both a king and a servant. And in fact, his servant-hearted nature is a description of of what type of king he is and what his kingdom is like. You refused to lower yourself, and so he lowered himself for you. Like, like we were supposed to be the servants, and we tried to be the master. And so the master became the servant because somebody had to serve someone. And we refused to serve him, and so God decided to serve us. He decided to lower himself in some senses below us to prop us up. When we were trying to exalt ourselves, he humbled himself. Why? So that eventually he would be exalted. That's what chapter 23 says, is that if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. And the ultimate moment of humility in Jesus' life is when the king became killable and he went to a cross willingly, knowing exactly what was about to happen. And he lay naked, ashamed, embarrassed, dying in front of everyone to see. But in that moment of willing humility, he was exalted in the resurrection and forever will be exalted as the name above every name in the universe. He humbled himself and then became exalted, and then he invites us into that same humility so that we can be exalted in him. Listen, there's only two types of religion in the world. There's strong religion and weak religion, and the only weak religion is Christianity. Every other religion is follow some sort of religious guru or follow some, some philosophy that will make your life better. And if you follow the steps, if you listen to the guru, if you do the right things, then you will self-improve. You will become stronger. But Jesus says, come to me and lower yourself. And through lowering yourself, you can become strong in him. And every other religion including Christianity, when you try to make it about your own morality, is, is just burdening. 
That's what it says in chapter 23, that the Pharisees were laying burdens on people, but Jesus takes burdens off. His his yoke is easy. His burden is light. And, And the reason why no other religion works besides his is because when you try to get strong in your morality, when you try to get strong in your religion, all it does is feeds that rebellious nature of the human heart. What's our baseline problem is that we want to become the master, and so when you turn religion into morality, it, it just feeds that desire in us. It's like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. Like you're just going to pour gasoline on your sin by trying to be good on your own or trying to be strong, but in dependence on him and his strength, you find rest for your soul and true greatness in him. So, what does it look like to be in the kingdom? When, when you get that truth, how does it transform your life? Well, there's, there's a famous discussion in here that Jesus has with the religious leaders about taxes. And they ask him, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, hand me a coin. And he holds up the coin that, that has Caesar's image on it. And he says, whose image is this? You say Caesar's. And he says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and pay to God what is God's. So the pay to Caesar what is Caesar's is fairly self-explanatory. Pay your taxes. Okay, Christians pay their taxes. The second piece of that, what specifically does that mean? Give to God what is God's. And specifically, he's using this idea of an image. Well, what uniquely has God's image on it? You. So when he says, give to God what is God's, he's saying you bear the image of God. His mark is on your life because he owns you and it certifies the authenticity of of his ownership and his grace in your life. And so recognize that image on your coin, so to speak, and hand your life to him so that that image of God will start to become primary in your life. See, here's what you give to kings. You give them your allegiance, your service, your hope in exchange for protection and a future and flourishing and a vision for your life. Jesus is saying, I want your allegiance and I, in response, will give you the kingdom. Everything you've wanted in life, you can have in me. The desires of your soul, you can find in him, not perfectly in this life, but you will find them in him. You give yourself to King Jesus. Now, we talk about what that means all the time. So I just want to briefly hit on what that, the opposite of that or what that doesn't mean. Giving yourself to King Jesus means that you can't give yourself to Donald Trump. It also means that you can't give yourself to Joe Biden. Allegiance to Jesus means that you can't give yourself, like Drew said, to the Republican Party, contrary to popular belief, or the Democratic Party. Because you can't put your your hope and your allegiance in any kingdom besides his kingdom. And idolatry or false worship, false worship of a king, is demonstrated by out-of-control emotions. And so when you find yourself freaking out about the world or freaking out about something that's happening in our culture or politically, it might be a sign that your allegiance is placed somewhere else. But when you give your allegiance to Jesus, he starts to, to... to bring that image of God out in you. He starts to bring that to life practically in your life. 
And here's what that looks like, is you put on his humility and you put on his authority. Let's take humility first. Chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. That last verse is huge. He just said that that is the summary of everything that God has said about what it means to live life in him. Love God, love your neighbor. And and here's why this is under the the title of humility, is because love is the way that Jesus' humility manifested itself. So his humility didn't manifest itself in this kind of um, self-lowering way or or self-deprecating way. It it manifested itself in the service of other people, lowering himself to prop up other people. Now here's what's true for all of us, is we've woken up for years, either consciously or intuitively thinking, how do I get what I want today? How do I create a life so that I can get the life that I want? But the real question of Christianity is what does love demand of me today? That is the essence of life, real life in him. What does love demand of me today? And it's amazing if you'll just ask yourself that question, how much that can change the decisions you make. So we all have this internal dialogue and we ask ourselves bad questions, so we give ourselves bad answers, with, which leads to bad behavior. And so if we change that question to align with Jesus' heart, things start to make a little bit more sense. Okay, so in your marriage, you're frustrated with your spouse. Maybe you're thinking about leaving your spouse. Or maybe you won't leave, but you want to just kind of check out. You don't want to invest anymore. Simple question, what does love demand of you? I think the answer becomes pretty clear. Your time. What does love demand of your time? Not what do you want to do with your time. What does love demand of your time? We understand the principle at like work or something like that when we've got something to get done and so we become efficient and productive and planned out in order to reach that goal. So if the goal of your time in your life is to love as much as humanly possible, how would you spend it in order to get to that goal? You've got a decision to make tonight, Netflix or time in prayer for someone. What would love require of you? You're interacting with your boss who is very frustrating to you and you don't think you should be your boss. What does love require of you? And look, if you really want to do this, the best way to apply it is not to go try really hard to apply it. Because it's almost impossible to consistently remember that question. And so what I would encourage you is instead, pray and ask God to bug you with that question. Ask him by his spirit to bring that question to mind and help transform you into the type of person who lives consistently in love. And actually prayer, if if. Love is the way of demonstrating Jesus' humility. Prayer is the way of putting on God's authority 
Look at chapter 21, verses 21 and 22. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Faith-filled prayer is your access to the supernatural. It's, your, it, it's the means by which the authority of Christ is primarily lived out in your life. You can bring the authority of Jesus out, down and out of your life through prayer. Now, usually we do the opposite with this verse than what Jesus intended. So here's what I mean by that is Jesus is trying to stir up our imagination and he's saying, hey, dream about what you want to have happen for my name done in the world. And I want to answer that prayer. But what do we typically do with this? We go, move mountains. I don't think I can do that. And, and we start to question, what does he mean by this? Of course he can't answer every prayer. Like, like I've prayed prayers before that he hasn't answered. What does this mean? And we end up doing the exact opposite. We're doubting instead of living in faith. And there's some explanations for that, but we don't need to get into that now because we just take Jesus' words at face value and we believe what he said. And he wants to encourage and stir up faith in you. And so faith-filled prayer is you walking into the throne room of God and making demands of God. And not only does he want you to do that and welcome you there, but he empowers that in you. He listens and he acts. That's his authority. Are you taking advantage of his authority and what he wants to do in the world? All right, so imagine that you were in charge of snow removal of every road in the Twin Cities. All right, so this is a new job for you. You're in charge of that. You get like a, a briefing on, on how to do it. And they're showing you all the plows and, and all the workers that you have kind of under your authority. And so you get done with that meeting. Let's say it just happens to be here at the graduate. And you grab your scoop shovel and you walk out to 94. And you just start scooping. And uh, one of the workers comes along and is like, we, we have plows for that. We, you might want to try those. And you're just like, nah, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'll, I'll be here. I'll, I'll get it done. I'm just, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep scooping. Okay, what will they conclude about you? Either that you're, I mean, kind of insane, but, but either that you're really proud and somehow are convinced that you by hand can scoop all of the snow off of all of the roads in the Twin Cities, or that you for some reason think all the plows are broken and that's your only option. Living the Christian life without prayer is like trying to get Jesus' task done and going out with a scoop shovel and just standing there, going at it. Maybe you can move a little bit of snow, but you're not getting anywhere close to the type of thing that Jesus had predicted of what he would do in the world. And if someone looks at you, a Christian, with a prayerless life, they have to either conclude that you're proud or that you think prayer is broken. Take him up on his offer to help you live this life in his kingdom. One of my favorite quotes, I've maybe shared this before here, I don't really remember, but if I've forgotten, you probably have too, so either way, on prayer is this, Satan laughs at our toiling, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. So I'd like to end like this, I'd actually invite the band to, to come on up.
And I, I want to not just talk about prayer, but give you a minute to do it. And so um, while the band plays and sings this first song, I, I just want to give you a minute to pray. Now, if there's something that, that God has convicted you of that you just need to do business with him, you do that. Talk to him about it. But I also want to invite some of you to, to engage in faith-filled, authority-filled prayer for not only your life, but for our city. And so I want to invite you to pray for our church, whatever God brings to mind. Take a second and dream about what you want God to do in the life of our church. Pray for our city. And just ask him like he really wants to answer that prayer. And so you can take that, take a moment during the song, and you can, you can pray on your own. Or if you want, um, you can pray with somebody next to you. Now, now stick to kind of your, your, your family or roommate unit. Um, but if you want to spend some time praying with somebody next to you, you can take this time to do that. So, yeah, let's take some time and pray together during this song.